You are now entering the take-up, a place to gather when the film is over. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and I'm here with my co-host and managing editor of thetakeup.com, Andrew Wyatt. Andrew. Hello. Today we are now showing Renfield sucks. <laughs> Renfield yeah, it was not good. Oh, bad. So a film that feels like, I feel like I've used this before, so maybe I shouldn't use it again. It feels as if like you just put something in chat GPT and, and this is the result. There's yeah. no identifiable humanity in it. And I'm not asking for that. I'm asking for something beyond like a, a mosaic of borrowed notes from a million different things. And they all come together in one really ugly yeah. movie. It's very disappointing because this is Chris McKay, the director of the Lego Batman movie, which is actually pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, so it's not a guy who like doesn't know what he's doing, but I don't know. It feels like I described it as it's not a movie. It's a bunch of movie pieces rattling mm-hmm. around in a coffin. Like that's what it feels like. <laughs> and very dead. Um, yeah. And, and like this is the problem. And I, and I hate I, I hate to sort of use other things to compare as a yardstick to compare something against. But it is unavoidable that in 2023, if you're going to make a vampire satire, you have to confront the fact that you're competing against what we do in the shadows, what the we do film in the and shadows. the series. And it doesn't need to be what we do in the shadows, right? No. It's just like, if you're going to do it, <laughs> you better be up to snuff because it goes into a lot of different areas where what we do in the shadows would never go. So, I mean, the setup is Nicholas Holt is playing Renfield. Dracula's familiar. There's a cute little thing where they digitally impose Nicolas Cage is playing Dracula over Bella Lugosi in the 1930. What? Maybe like the only impishly fun little piece in the entire movie, actually. The fact that where they're like, they're forest gumping them into Dracula. Yeah. (laughs) And, but it's, it's actually pretty well done. And I thought it was a neat beginning and a neat idea and like ideas that the director had that he was doing like in, in Lego Batman which is like chock full of fresh and referential ideas. Um, but that's about it. I would say that Nicolas Cage is the highlight. Yeah. Half the time he's on screen, which is not a lot. He's doing what Paul Rubens did in the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie right. and then cranking it up to Cajun levels. Like it's <laughs> that same sort of thing, but done in his style. Um, I so, did. So I liked him and I liked the... Yeah. Um, the approach, the sort of splatter stick approach to mm-hmm. the action where they just sort of like brain dead shit exploding into goo everywhere. Like, I like that kind of over the top, but like, that's it. Like, that's really has nothing else going for it. Yeah, that's all they've got. And there are, there's one scene where Nicolas Cage, where Dracula confronts Renfield, and Renfield has been betraying Dracula by not feeding him like healthy like a busload of cheerleaders as he wants uh instead giving him just like awful people which does not give him as much life i guess i get the, I get sure. the impression i don't know if it's a taste yeah, thing yeah. or a power thing and even that like that very conceit is joked on in the movie it's like oh here's our conceit and then in voiceover nicholas holt's like yeah just buy it just go with it 
like that's as clever as they know how to get with this. And like the but, sub, the sub guy Richie voiceover and freeze frames is just like. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all, all that. But but the scene I'm getting at is where he confronts him in his apartment. But he's like a jilted lover who's fully aware that he's that, been on. That has some good writing in it. That funny. Is it is very funny. It has okay writing, but it is Nicolas Cage who really pulls it off by like, oh, you've been blah, blah, yay. It's just really good Nick Cage work. Him, him trying to make Dracula, him trying to make Dracula coy and it's not working. It's like deliberately. So, yeah, it does not work because he's dressed as Count Dracula. Um, Aquafina is also in it. Remember that? Yeah. I, I actually, I just, I think Aquafina is like falling out of favor. I still like her. But like she's doing shtick. She's doing the thing that she does in this. Like she's Shane, doing the same thing as that Marvel Shane, movie. Shane T. Yeah. Yeah. She, but she like, you know, the joke is something happens. And then she says that that thing happened out right. loudly and brashly. And that's the joke. And with an F word. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. That's disappointing. Hey, I I didn't get to see Bo's Afraid, but you have seen it. I know you're going to write a review on it. Yeah. Is this more horror or not? It is not horror. Uh, so this is Ari Oster's third feature. A lot of hypes are running. A lot of divisive opinions already out there based on what it did at the festivals. How to describe this? So, yeah, I have a review coming and I haven't entirely 100% developed my thoughts yet. So I'll save some of that for and direct you guys to the review, which should probably be up by the time this podcast is up. I liked it. It is my least favorite of Ari Aster's three films. And yet I still really enjoyed myself. And I'm That's glad. not really saying much for you. Yeah, I, like, I'm a person who's love... on record. It's loving Hereditary. I love Midsummer, maybe just a little bit less. Um, this one's maybe like a more reserved light. But I'm very happy that this movie exists in the world because it is a three-hour, $35 million, absolutely unhinged. All It's like, it's all big swings. The entire movie is big swings top to bottom. It is not a horror film, although there are horrific elements in it. It is like a picaresque, like a movie version of one of these like picaresque novels. It's the Odyssey as a sort of Jewish American and anxiety attack where a guy's just trying to get to his mom's house. Mm. <laughs> I understand. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot. Um, I do How, recommend I just... it, but I do think people are going to like really be divided on it. People are going to love it or hate it. Can, will you just tell me how much is Parker Posey in it? She's in quite a bit, particularly in the final movement. I hate to describe this movie as acts because the whole thing is sort of structured like a dream. So mm -hmm. you know how like in, when you're having a dream or a nightmare, things just kind of happen in an A to B to C kind of way that doesn't really make sense if you tried to explain it, but within the uh, dream, it certainly makes sense. This mm -hmm. film kind of captures that sensation. So there are basically more phases to the film with a little interlude slid in there in the middle and Parker Posey doesn't really even show up till the fourth phase but she's in that fourth phase quite a bit so so I've got a reason to sit there the whole time even yeah. if I feel like I'm getting tortured which is like what most of the internet seems to think it is it is a movie about anxiety we'll say that and so I will say it's not a movie that holds together it, it feels in it feels like it's very much a, a tour being let off the chain and allowed to do whatever the hell he wants um, which is good and bad sometimes. It's three hours long. I will say in its favor that I do think it, I think of the first opening movement, the first 45 minutes are incredibly strong. And if I have a, if I have one major complaint, it's that it doesn't sustain the energy. If it had three hours of the energy it has in the first 45 minutes, it would be extraordinary. 
because that first 45 minutes is probably the best depiction of anxiety disorders from like a subjective viewpoint that I've ever seen in my entire life. It's, it's absolutely great and absolutely crazy. Um, well, speaking of anxiety, how about how to blow up a pipeline? Keep me say how to build a pipeline. I think no, the opposite. Yeah, the those opposite. are that is the opposite. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. You haven't? Oh, okay. Anola yeah, watches Renfield. I wrote so I reviewed this film a couple weeks ago. Um, you can find my full length review on the takeup.com. Um, I may be a little bit more colder on this than some of the critics. I think the reception of this film has been very good. And I kind of understand why it was a big festival hit. It's a sort of, it's a very indie film, but made in this very like melancholic thriller style that like very clearly owes a debt to Michael Mann. Like there's some thief in there, but there's also some like retro, um, like mid-century noir, like gritty noir stuff in there. I feel like there's a little Kubrick's The Killing. There's a little Cirque du Rouge. Like it's, it has a cool vibe. I'm not sure. This is from Daniel Goldhaber, who directed an excellent horror film called Cam from a few, couple of years ago. He co-wrote it with um, a whole bunch of people. It's a big uh, collaborative work. The, there's like four or five writers credited, and it's not the usual like Marvel movie going through a whole bunch of writers. This is like a bunch of people who deliberately collaborated to shape the script, one of whom is like the main actress in the film. Um, so it's a very cool concept. I do think that as a as a, if you're looking for like a good movie about the politics of direct action and the politics of climate change and the politics of radical environmentalism, this movie doesn't really doesn't really give you anything. If that you're makes sense, recalling night moves to me, maybe just because we just went through all of Kelly Riker. Yeah, I do so. mention. I mentioned. I ended up mentioning. Maybe that's just because I just recently saw it, but I did talk about. Like, I think Night Moves is the superior version of the story. It has some similar vibes. I ultimately prefer what Kelly Riker did, which was to go in kind of a granola Portland hippie version of Crime and Punishment. Like, it's really and about Kelly like horror Reichardt version. Yeah. Of it's really like about horror and it's more of a character study inside somebody's head about horror and guilt and paranoia. This is much more trying to be like a statement film. I guess that's what bothered me about it a little bit. I, I do really recommend it as a thriller, as a procedural about the title. How would you blow up a crude oil pipeline? Like this is a pretty awesome, like if you like that sort of gritty procedural, they don't explain anything. They just show you things and let you, the viewer sort of, they don't hold your hand a lot. You have to kind of figure out as the team gets pulled together, you know, Ocean's Eleven style, and they sort of work out exactly what they're going to do. It's one of these movies where they tell you what they're going to do, and then they do it. But of course, because it's a heist film, conceptually, there are complications and setbacks, and they have to improvise and so forth. So just if you just approach it as sort of a moody version of that thriller, I think you'll, I think a lot of people will enjoy it. Um, it is based on a nonfiction environmental manifesto, which is sort of weird. It's It's a narrative piece of narrative fiction that was based on Andreas Malm's 2021 nonfiction book, which has the same title, which isn't really a, you know, a story. It's, it's his like manifesto called call to violent eco-terrorism. And they turned it into a story about a bunch of specific people in this sort of fictional narrative. I think that's a little weird. And I think the film loses something in that translation. Like you don't learn anything about the science of climate change. You don't learn anything about the moral arguments about direct action versus nonviolence versus defensive violence. You don't learn anything about the oil industry. All you sort of get is the logistics of this heist. 
So if that's enough for you, I do highly recommend it because it's a very good version of that thing. Did you see Air? No, I did not. I did. And it kind of reminds me of this, my feelings Mm -hmm. about Air because it is a very polished Hollywood product. It comes from, you know, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and and they're re-teaming. And 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 remind me, this this is about like Nike landing Michael Jordan as Michael a Jordan, like, right. postman brand. So, so not only do you know <laughs> you're anticipating that the entire time about the journey there and the steps that they have to take as um, the lowest rank in market share for athletic wear and become Nike and have the you know the flagship shoe for an entire sport and maybe the entire world, the Air Jordan. And the anti-capitalist in me is like, gross. I don't, I don't even want to get near that. Why would I cheer for these people? I liked it. Well, that, to me, that's the sign of a good film. I mean, this applies to like anything, I think, is that if a There's film a can get you to care, get you to yeah. care about something that you shouldn't care about, that to me is a sign of success. Yeah, and it's, it's a very typical upstart corporate story and you can translate that directly to like an athlete's story or a politician's story like you have seen this again and again and again but there's a freshness to it like it's really well uh structured and has really well sketched characters i think a lot of that is owed to the cast if jason bateman in here you've got uh, chris messina has the like best rant at someone i forget there's something about chewing up spitting out his balls or something like that and you're still just very endeared but i I have to tell you viola davis plays michael jordan's mother i've heard she runs away with it just absolutely steals it from the second she walks on the screen she has just this great reserve of power and doesn't have to do a whole lot Sort of gets the film's thesis whenever she uh, bargains that Jordan should get a share of the profits for yeah. the Air Jordan. So this is also the little bit about, you know, the underdog getting a, a seat at the table, but also a piece of the pie. I've heard some comparisons to um, Moneyball, not in terms of style, yeah. like Bennett Miller's, Moneyball, yeah. which has a different style, but in the sense that, like, it's very much about the logistics of the deal making and so forth the idea that i've seen i've seen the compare and i'm not making this comparison i saw some other critic make it but i thought it was interesting in the same way that you don't actually see hardly any oakland athletics games being played in moneyball you don't see jordan in air and it's a really odd decision that you do have michael jordan in the rooms but he's obstructed and he says nothing Oh, so he's that's, not that is, a that's a little weird in it. Yeah. And I don't know if it's like reverence for him or like kind of mythologizing because he is a human and <laughs> the, it takes, you know, steps at the beginning to actually walk you through Jordan's career and you see his face. And I don't know if they wanted to do that and also didn't want to show his face or just completely remove him from the narrative. But it's a really odd move. That yeah, that's a weird way to do it. That's yeah, I'm and guessing I mean, that there has to be some rights issues right there with the use, even if you're casting well, an actor. Yeah, I don't know, because it seems to get in the weeds 
with all the logistics about all this. So, well, yeah. in the weeds I, about Nike's deal, right? But like, I'm thinking about like he he had exer- exerted a lot of control allegedly over the Last Dance documentary series, mm. you know, and that's nothing. That's it's different. It's documentary, not fiction. But I don't know. There may have been issues with like can't actually show the guy. I don't yeah. Know. Well, I'll tell you, they 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 didn't show him, but they sure did throw some numbers at us as far as money and. I'm still solid, solid Ben Affleck, Affleck directorial. I still think his best film is his first one. It's gone, baby gone. But I have no memories of Ben Affleck. I don't even remember him. He's fine. He's just got these really weird, like insert shots of uh, what are the Rubik's cubes? Like, what are you doing? We know it's the '80s. Stop reminding us it's the '80s. It's the flashing neon sign that says the it's the '80s. Remember '80s. Right. I don't know. So how do you like this for a transition? Speaking of great auteurs like Ben Affleck, <laughs> the Darden brothers new film. Have you seen it? Have you seen it? No, oh. no, I want to. Are you I a fan? Want, uh, Are you a fan I of them? Yeah. Yeah. I am a fan. I'm not like a rabid, but I think the kid with the bike is my favorite I love that of one. theirs. I love mm-hmm. that one. I put that on my top 10 of the I love that more than, than the ones that typically get charted out, like Rosetta or The yeah. Child. I think I think The Kid with the Bike might be their, my favorite of them, of the ones I've seen. I'm so glad you agree. I love, love that. So much. But, yeah, Torian so, Lakita? Yeah, so this is the, uh, so, so for those who don't know, this is the latest film from the fairly prolific Belgian directors, Luke and Jean-Pierre Dardenne. I'll have them say their name right. Dardenne? Yes, sounds good to me. Called Torian Lakita. This story is about, it's a, it's a sort of great film in the vein of films that they like to do, which is like social realism grounded in the realities of contemporary Belgian life as a sort of pan-European, pan-global emerging society that's getting complicated and dealing with capitalism and globalism and everything and geopolitical struggles and sort of realized on the very sort of local personal level with these characters that they always sort of focus on. Um, this film, this particular film is about um, an older teenage girl, Lokita, who is in Belgium with a boy, Tori, who the film suggests, it never comes states outright, that it still suggests that they are not actually biological brother and sister. Um, Tori has been given asylum in Belgium as what's called a sorcerer child, which is that he, he had to flee Cameroon. So both, they're both from Cameroon is what I gather from the film. And he had to flee Cameroon due to being like identified by some superstitious locals as being like a witch child or a sorcerer child. And I guess there's a special provision in, uh, the European union or in Belgium specifically that gives asylum to children who are sort of rescued from these situations. He has brought his quote-unquote sister, Lokita, along. The film sort of begins in media res when they're already settled in Belgium somewhat and trying to deal with their situation. Lokita um, basically is having to defend the falsehood that she's created, that she's his biological sister. Like, the idea is that if he has asylum and she's his sister, she gets to come too. She gets to settle permanently in Belgium too. They're trying to prove that. They're having a difficult time proving that. It probably isn't true. But to, this, to what, what the Dardens are doing, it's really irrelevant because you see that the bond that they share is so close, it might as well be um, like a brother-sister bond. And the two actors that uh, who both star in it, who are sort of just both complete unknowns, like the Dardens often do, um, 
they're spectacularly creating this like completely instantly credible sibling bond. So like, even if you don't buy their story, you buy that they have this very close relationship. And the film is largely about like them trying to navigate the process of all these different competing interests battering them at once. They have the, the human smuggler who basically brought them to Belgium originally still wants to like get paid the back money that they owe to him. Uh, they have no real way to make income. He's trying to go there. She's, she's trying to send him the young boy to school. She's trying to also like run a side hustle at night where they both run drugs for like a local gangster. Um, and it's about all these competing interests. She gets sucked into this proposition in order to get like a viable ID or something. She gets sucked into this proposition where she has to go kind of grow a house out in the hinterlands for like five weeks. And she's like trapped there. She can't leave. Um, it's a really, so it's, it's, it's Isn't very much like 83 minutes. Yes. Um, so, I'm, so, I mean, that's part of what the Dardens do so well is yeah. like with minimal expository dialogue with minimal gestures, they create these very instantly believable, immersive situations. Textured. Yeah. Yeah. It is a very angry film. I will say that in the sense that mm. what the Dardens are trying to do feels like a very messagey movie by the end. And the way I described it is so many of their films are kind of like the messages. Does Belgium suck? Actually, I think Belgium might suck. This movie is very much a forthright. Fuck you, Belgium, for doing this, mm. for putting people in this situation where they feel like they have to do these things and have to go through these ordeals. Um, it almost plays like a thriller. There's a lot of like sequences where Tori is trying to like sneak into the grow house where he knows Lakita is, and you're kind of watching on tenterhooks is this little boy all, all of sort the, of navigate their films feel of um Pets. very tense and like how we were talking about kelly reichardt's films yeah. as um stealth suspense films yeah they do low, low very much stealth. feel like that get the bike maybe not as much i don't know because you love the kid is the kid with the bike gonna be okay is the so, bike okay that's maybe like the only call. So I do highly recommend it. It's actually playing at the Alamo right now. Um, I think it's probably going to be on VOD shortly. Well, but the planes, I don't know what the fuck that is. What's the, who is that? What is that? It's on movie. Though, yeah. Right? Yes. So okay, this is I a movie. That. This is, a, this is an Australian film film called the, the planes. Speaking of three hour films, this that movie is three hours long. Uh, if you described it to somebody, they would say, I have no interest in this. So it's a docu fiction film created by a first-time i'm filmmaker. in yeah I, I i think this is your kind of thing actually but i think this is a hard sell to some to some listeners out there so this is an australian filmmaker named david e Steele. he's never made a, a feature film as far as i can tell the too long didn't read version is he just puts us in the sort of backseat or on the armrest of a car of a lawyer in melbourne and he gives us the period when this lawyer drives home every day from his office to his home on sort of suburban Melbourne. And that's the whole movie is these 15 to 10 minute segments of that drive home. And so there's like, it's rush hour. So there's like a lot of action, quote unquote, just him sitting in traffic in taillights doing nothing. Um, yeah. Listening to the Hell radio. Yeah. Hell yeah. I love this movie already. <laughs> So the texture, what's fascinating about it to me is a lot. I mean, it's very much a movie about that. Uh, people overuse the word liminal, right? But this isn't a liminal space. It's a liminal time. 
It's mm. that commuting. Is, mm. I mean, like I say this is somebody who commutes for two hours every day. Like this is the space when we're not actually doing anything. And we've tried to fill our lives with podcasts and radio and all sorts of other things to fill that and space. And having a podcast. Wait, you commute for two hours a day? Usually about an hour there and an hour back. Yeah. I no. N-O. <laughs> N-O. Um, um, if they're listening, Andrew deserves a raise. So the interesting thing about this is the way that um, the filmmaker creates texture. So like if it was just like Andy Warhol style experimental film where nothing really happened, like that would be one thing. But the amazing thing is he uses the sort of very limited, this very limited component. There's a few insert sequences from other things like drone footage and so forth. I actually kind of prefer it when it stays very tightly tethered to sort of we actually never see the driver's face until the end of the movie because it's tethered right. The camera is fixed right there on the armrest looking forward through his windshield. So his face is somewhat obscured. Um, this is all docufiction. This is certainly this is a real per, a sort of non-professional actor who's kind of playing himself. The filmmaker met this guy and he's basically said, I want to recreate the drives that we took when we, we were called carpooling home from work all those years. I want to recreate the car conversations and kind of miniature. So the, the genius of it is that about 50% of the time he has a traveling companion, he has a carpool, a younger man played by the director himself who's carpooling in the car with him. So we get to have conversations. The younger man is not talkative. The main character, the protagonist is. So we get, he's a very effusive character and we get a lot of his like life story sort of spilling out in snippets during these drives. He also listens to the radio. He has conversations every day after work. He calls his mother and his wife on the phone, but he has iPods in. So we never hear their side of the conversation. We only hear the things that he's saying to them. We have to kind of piece together what's happening. This sounds like your jam, right? It's Stephen Knight's lock by the Harvard ethno uh, yes. ethnographics. I thought of lab. Lock. I thought of lock. It's like, a, it's like a very um, art. Yeah. Monica Harvard, Mana Harvard. and yeah. lock. Yeah. Harvard Ethno uh, Lab is exactly the way it's not ethnographic sensory lab. They have right. a new movie coming out soon, which I'm probably going to talk oh, about. Oh, 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 it's coming to Webster, and I'm excited to see inside that body. So I really appreciate it. So the ingenious, so I'm talking a lot about it, but um, I don't want to oversell it because it is three hours of like a lot of non-action. Uh, so I really admire it. It's on Mubi right now. So if you have a Mubi subscription, either independently or over the top on another service, you can watch it for free right now. Um, very cool. Very cool. Definitely go slotting into my sort of early top 20, 2023 list that's resolving. I've got one too. Oh, yeah. But it's very different. It's okay. very different. Have you seen anything by Makoto Shinkai? No, I don't think so. Oh, your name, Weathering With You. Oh, yes. Yes. I love your name. Okay. I said I didn't recognize the name. Yeah. Um, no, he's, your name was like the biggest sensation in Japan and, you know, around the world. I definitely saw in theater. Suzume, his latest film, which is in wide release, is, um, I feel like an improvement or even uh, maybe a perfecting of really? things he was after in your name, Weathering With You. It is about a teenage girl who lives with her aunt and uh, she is orphaned and you follow her as she goes on an adventure. The conceit is very spirited away. Wizard of Oz with a bit of a, 
a mission film baked into it. And I don't, it, it is, it owes a lot to Miyazaki. And I think that is part of the point of it. It is about someone who is dealing with grief. Miyazaki deals with that quite a bit. It is about the space time memory. So it's a really interesting film. She opens a portal to the, the other world, the, I forget what they call it, the other realm or something that is essentially heaven. Well, it, when you're explaining it, it sounds they don't say very the word heaven. Right. They don't say they the do word not. heaven. <laughs> they do not, but it is, it is the other side. A lot of it sounds very trite. For me, it did not play that way at all. Um, she it sort of immediately falls in love with this hot dude. There's <laughs> always a hot and, guy. Yeah, and follows him around. And what they find is within these sort of destitute areas around Japan are these portals to this other side. And and they <laughs> she gets very much entrenched in his role as what they call a closer. So these portals open and those sort of create this huge I, my jaw dropped when this thing first. I'm reading out. the summary. I'm reading the summary while you're talking. This sounds crazy. It, it is, and it is fantastical and fantastic and fantastical. Literally, when you have got like the the worm shooting up and into the sky, and if it falls before they close this portal, then a natural disaster occurs. So there's a bit about the earth in there. There's bits of. Mononoke, there's bits of uh, you feel spirited away, but it, it is bifurcated in a very interesting way too. And the first half is really, it, it, the entire film is a journey and you are following a map on a phone from uh, oh, the southern cool. tip of Japan all the way up through Tokyo. So it's, it's a road, it's a lot. Yeah, I'd say it sounds like a road movie too. It's a lot you of things. Think would you say that this Makoto making like his Ghibli homage film or his film like most influenced by Ghibli or what? Yeah, most influenced by, but it still retains his very, you know, love story manga as um, yeah. showed you that vibe is very teenagers there. in love. Teenagers in love. It is very present. I'm a very and cynical dude. And, but I am not made of stone, and your your name got to me. Your name didn't get to me as hard as this thing did. Mm, ooh, um, wow. it's it by its end, it is rough. <laughs> and great um, animation, I'm assuming. Like this, we sort of just come gorgeous. to back. It's it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, it's it it's sitting pretty well with me, and I think you know, in describing it, it is a very difficult thing to describe. A lot of critics have called it overplotted. I didn't feel that way watching it. All of it felt very naturally I mean, devised. I mean, that's like the most generic anime complaint you could possibly make. Yeah, throw right, a right, dartboard right. and hit, a, hit an overplotted anime film. Like, right, right, you got to right, take right. that with the with the genre, I think. I bet it's a Wait, lovely movie. Well, it's this interesting. One, I'm excited yeah, this that, that you can special. go I, to a multiplex in St. Louis, Missouri and see yeah. an anime film. It's kind of a cool, cool yeah. moment that we're at now. And typically, uh, you'll get a choice of subtitled or dubbed. I saw it with subtitles, um, you know, as, as we should do. You should do. You should do it that Cinema. way. Also, I'm right. deaf. That's so no a lot of what... movies. <laughs> yeah. All right. You're going to see one of my, I'm going to see one of yours. I'm okay. going to, I'm going to watch Dorian Lakita. I know. I know I will. Yeah. I'm just. Get ready to cry a little. 
by the end. Yeah. Well, if you go see Suzume, you're going to cry too. Hmm. Hey, oh, uh, uh, before we go, I, I wanted to plug an event, an upcoming event. I'm now programming a series at the Arkham Cinema and Bar called Counter Program, typically Friday night. And it is expressly to link or counter against a new release upcoming this Friday, which is 21st. Evil Dead Rise is coming out, and that's Evil Dead in a high rise. And I was like, you got to see Cronenberg's Shivers, man. Don't is you that want- the premise of Shivers? This is one of the early Cronenbergs I've never seen. So, like, it give, me the, a, give me the nickel summary. It is a communicable disease. It is a sexually transmitted disease. It's also little bugs. Ooh. And it's when Cronenberg is still, like, this is his debut feature. I mean, he had, quote-unquote, feature-length films, Crimes of the Future and Stereo before, and Fast Company. I think that all of those are around an hour, but this is, like, proper feature-length. Mm. And uh, it's a nasty, brutal piece of work. As you would expect, it's Cronenberg in his exploitation era before he got a little bit more, I don't know, mainstream, I guess you would say. And you want to call right the fly before, mainstream. <laughs> Flies 20th Century Fox with yeah. Jeff Goldblum. No, I mean, he's still gnarly always, as hell. <laughs> he's always been himself and he can't be anything. But even when he's doing uh, Young and uh, uh, what's his tits? Come on. Carl, Jung and Freud. Yeah. Jung and Freud. Right, right, right. Dangerous method. Right. Yeah. Good film. But it, yeah, it's going to be a really good time. So I hope you come out. There's tickets at ArkhamandCinema.com. Is there May skin 19th. peeling? Is there skin peeling in this movie? Yeah, there's all mm. oh. there's all kinds of ooey gooey shit. I'm a little gun shy ever since like the Cabin Fever Crazies remake phase. Oh, little... Cabin Fever when she's shaving her legs. Yeah. Oh, like never forget. It was a tragedy <sighs> in my childhood. But in May, Fast Ten, Fast X, the new Fast and Furious <laughs> film is coming out. Vin Diesel so talking like, about family. That's all we really need to know. Family. And in my head, I had this song, We Are Family. And I'm like, that's in a movie where they're going on a road trip. Oh, it's Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Also, The Birdcage. Well, it's kind of like a gay anthem for yeah. the night. Well, let me bring this yeah, back around. Let me bring this around 180 degrees real quick, though. Okay. Nathan Lane is in Bo is Afraid. Playing the straightest Ned Flanders squarest dude you could imagine. It's amazing. Time is a flat circle. Anyway, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Steven Spielberg produced that movie. You know the oral history of of Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. But it's nuts. Um, it's a lot of fun. All right. I feel like that movie. That movie's like it's gone through like a cycle. Like if it, it was a cult classic, and now it's kind of like a second generation cult classic. Everybody's mm-hmm. holding it up as like this iconic movie. Well, we'll see how the kids react to it. I don't know. Yeah. It's not twenty twenty three. It's from nineteen ninety five, guys. Three straight yeah. actors. Yeah. The caveat there, um, but I also think it's pretty sharp for its time too. So, um, but yeah, Shivers is up first. <laughs> That's a lot of new movies. Yeah. Well, we're and not doing them... a, we're not doing a we're not doing a big like lens feature this week. So this is our this is the extent of our what? episode. And we're not what? doing a we're not doing a big like uh-huh. we're not doing a big take up feature this week. So I love that. Um, I love that because I keep doing it too. I keep doing it too. No, we're not. But 
we do have our series coming up. That's the new black phone canon. Yeah. And you can read that article in PR and slate.com. We both have things that we're thinking about. I still have to pick my film, actually. We were the last episode we were talking about. We want to pick something we haven't seen. I look for the list and I have a lot of ideas. And we'll have our guest, Elliot Collins of Movie Files, a YouTube series coming on with his pick, too. So super exciting. We're moving into other super exciting things. Yeah. All right. Well. That's the take up and stuff. <laughs> no, no, I, no, like pithy outro. It's not going to be pithy, but here <laughs> it is. I want to thank Caleb for our social media. Jessica Pierce for editing our partners at Cinema St. Louis. Music by AMP. And well, until next time, uh, I got the shivers. I'm <laughs> writing this song. It's called The Shivers. What are you doing? Getting fired from the internet. <laughs> <laughs>